Welcome to the Finding God in the Body podcast. I'm Ben Riggs. Before we get into this episode, I'd just like to take a moment and encourage all my listeners to subscribe to this podcast. It's available on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'd also like to encourage y'all to support the podcast, which you can do a couple of ways. You can share episodes that you enjoy with your friends and family on Facebook and Twitter. And you can also order the book, Finding God in the Body, A Spiritual Path for the Modern West, which is available on Amazon and CreateSpace. If you're a Prime member, then please, by all means, take advantage of your free shipping and order on Amazon.com. But if you're not a Prime member and you have no incentive to order from Amazon, then I encourage you to order the book at FindingGodInTheBody.com using the CreateSpace option. That way, less of your money will go to Amazon.com and more to me, the author. And I would also like to announce that Finding God in the Body will soon be available in hardback through Barnes & Noble. Um, which is exciting. I'm looking forward to that, and I'll keep you all up to date about that. But with that housekeeping out of the way, we can now turn our attention towards this episode. In this episode, I want to talk about belief. And belief is a core component. Uh, In fact, it's a defining characteristic of religion and spirituality. But I would like to argue that belief often gets in the way of religion, good religion, and spiritual practice. And I would like to use 12 Steps or 12 Set Spirituality and Alcoholics Anonymous uh, as an example to argue that point. But before I do, um, it's inevitable that when I mention Alcoholics Anonymous and the 12 Steps, I'm going to receive criticism from listeners or readers. And I'd like to preempt some of that criticism. First, by saying that I'm not arguing that the 12 Steps or that Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous are perfect. Uh, They most certainly have their shortcomings. It's also common that readers or listeners who find the 12-step approach or Alcoholics Anonymous to be disagreeable often send me literature that shows the low success rate of such programs. And I would just like to note that, well, first of all, I would suspect that most treatment modalities dealing with alcoholism and drug addiction have a low success rate because addiction is a difficult problem and patient compliance is particularly difficult in that field. But second, I would also add that those numbers for Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous um, and other 12-step programs dealing with addiction, but particularly Alcoholics Anonymous, are watered down by the fact that there are large numbers of people referred to those programs, actually forced to go to those programs by lawyers, judges, employers, in order to keep their jobs or stay out of jail. So they're coerced into it, and they don't have a desire to actually follow through with the, the, the plan of recovery. And anytime someone lacks the desire to follow through with the treatment plan, obviously there's going to be low compliance, which dramatically decreases the odds of success. So I would just note that and keep that in mind when considering the efficacy of the 12 steps and Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm not saying that they're perfect. I'm focusing in on a particular quality of 12-step spirituality that I think is by and large unique to 12-step spirituality and represents a significant American contribution to the world of spirituality. And more emphasis on this particular quality would alleviate many of the problems that we see in American religion and spirituality. So with all that said, we'll now turn into the substance of this episode I've worked in the substance abuse industry for the better part of a decade, lecturing about spirituality and meditation practice, 
to clients and treatment centers um, dealing with alcoholism and drug abuse. And it's, it's often thought that those of an agnostic or atheistic temperament are the ones that struggle most with the spirituality of the 12-step program. In fact, in Alcoholics Anonymous' self-titled book, there's an entire chapter devoted to the agnostic. But the truth is, this hasn't been my experience. Oftentimes, people who are of an agnostic or atheistic temperament are open to a practice-based spirituality that doesn't emphasize a creator-type God, but nonetheless does meet all of the necessary qualifications for being a spiritual approach in that it transcends, it's a practice-based approach to life that enables us to transcend the claustrophobic, um, narrow-minded world between our ears and to tap into something greater than that self-centered perspective. And my experience is that people of an atheistic or agnostic temperament do not generally have any difficulty adopting or at least experimenting with that particular approach to life. In my experience, it's the more religiously inclined people that struggle with the 12-step spirituality. And that's because 12-step spirituality is action-based. Alcoholics Anonymous has no prescribed theology. There's no system of belief that members are expected to adhere to. It's just a pragmatic spirituality. You can walk into almost any AA meeting and find a handful of people that identify themselves as Christians, some Buddhists, maybe a Jewish person, a Muslim, and quite a few people who would describe themselves as spiritual but not religious. And it goes without saying that all these people believe different things, but if you were to go around and ask them, you would find that many of them have been sober for 5, 10, 15, 20 years. So they've been, by and large, released from the problems, from the bondage of their addiction, but they all believe different things. They believe different things, but experience the same result. Why? Because what you believe doesn't matter. It's how you believe it that's important. And that is simply stated the quality of 12-step spirituality that I think religion and spirituality would benefit from emphasizing more. Pragmatic spirituality, which is what the 12 steps represent or an example of, focuses almost exclusively on how you believe, not on what you believe. And that's why people of a religious orientation find it difficult to grasp. Evangelical Christianity, which is the single largest denomination in the United States, accounts for about 25% of the total Christian population. When you get down into the South, it accounts for about 40% of the total Christian population. And that's where I live. I live in Louisiana. And so maybe that's why my experience is that people of a religious orientation struggle more with the 12 steps than those of an agnostic or atheistic temperament. Maybe it's just because I'm inundated with people from an evangelical or fundamentalist background. But the fact remains that evangelical Christianity stresses the acceptance of certain theological propositions. And they focus far more on that than they do on the practice of spiritual principles. Evangelical Christianity is far more concerned with what you believe than it is with how you believe it. And people who come from an evangelical or fundamentalist background into Alcoholics Anonymous or 12-step spirituality struggle because they think they already have the spiritual angle worked out. They think that because they already believe certain propositions. They already affirm those key propositions. For them, religion, their, their brand of Christianity is no different from spirituality. 
when people from an evangelical or fundamentalist background try to get sober, they think they already have the spirituality angle worked out because they answer in the affirmative to all the right propositions. They already believe, and as far as they're concerned, belief is what spirituality is all about. It's the defining characteristic of spirituality because for them, spirituality and religion, their particular brand of evangelical Christianity, it's all the same. And that's why they struggle with the, 12, with the spirituality of the 12 steps. Their religiosity prevents them from seeing the obvious. You already believe. If the problem persisted in the face of your belief, then more of that belief cannot possibly be the solution to the problem. The 12 steps are referring to action or practice when they prescribe spirituality, not the affirmation of supernatural propositions. You can believe that Jesus Christ is the one and only Son of God and still walk right into a liquor store or the dope dealer's house. Belief is worthless unless it's capable of affecting your actions. In fact, a belief that fails to inspire action is not a belief at all. According to Pew Research, 58% of Americans believe the Bible is the literal word of God. Over 80% of evangelicals believe in the existence of heaven and hell. Now think about that for a minute. You believe there is an afterlife. You believe you will spend eternity in either perfect bliss or unimaginable torment, and that God alone is the arbiter in this matter. He will weigh the balance of your life against his prescribed guidelines, which are recorded in the Bible, and then he will assign you to either eternity in heaven or hell. Now, if you really believed all that, if you really believe that the Bible was the literal word of God, the will and testament of God, and that you would spend eternity in heaven or hell, and that that decision would be reached by weighing your life against the life prescribed in the Bible, if you believed all of that, wouldn't you read the Bible over and over again, cover to cover? Wouldn't you consult it before every consequential decision you made? But what percentage of people who claim to believe all that actually read the Bible cover to cover over and over again? How many of them actually consult the Bible before every consequential decision they make? Obviously, I can't answer that question with any degree of accuracy. But according to Pew Research, approximately one in three evangelicals read the Bible once a month or less. And according to LifeWay, one in five churchgoers say that they never read the Bible. So you have a large group of people who claim to believe all those propositions, but fail to express those beliefs in their actions. Why is it that such a substantial portion of the people that believe in all that don't read the Bible more frequently? I think the answer is actually pretty simple. People do not believe much of what they say they believe. And at this point, we need to pause and distinguish between a belief and a thought. A thought's an unsubstantiated idea, whereas a belief is an idea we are inclined to trust based on some measure of evidence, even if we can't prove it to be true or rationally explain our position. Belief is an idea or a network of ideas substantiated by enough reason or enough experience to inspire action, though it falls well short of knowledge or the state of knowing. For example, Imagine that you're in a strange house all alone. You're sitting in this dark room late at night. Inevitably, your mind's going to start to wander. At least mine would. And based on nothing at all, you're going to start to think that there's something or someone in the house. But I wouldn't get up and call the police. I mean, I, I might think that someone came in through the back door or I might think there's ghosts in the attic or whatever. But I don't get up and call the police and I don't leave because I know that they're just thoughts. They're not based on anything. They're just the spontaneous ruminations of my paranoid mind. That's all. But if I was in that house 
And then I heard a strange noise or something that sounded like someone talking or rummaging around in the house downstairs. Now I have reason to believe that there's someone in there. And at that point, I'm either hauling ass or I'm picking up the phone and calling the cops. And I'm doing that. Even I'm not certain. I mean, it could be a mouse. It could be a raccoon. It could be just the old house settling, whatever. But there's enough evidence there at that point to support me at least looking around or getting out of the house or calling the police to come check it out. And that's the threshold that an idea has to cross to become a belief. Otherwise, we're just saying thoughts and beliefs are synonymous. And obviously, those two words carry different connotations. Based on that criteria, most people do not actually believe. They just think. Their beliefs, so to speak, are in reality just unsubstantiated ideas. This is a serious problem in American religion. Uh, Religion in the United States is just ate up with fundamentalism. And I addressed this point in Finding God in the Body when I wrote, The fundamentalist is an individual who subscribes to a system of ideas that do not belong to them. They rely upon a book or the experience of another person who relies, interestingly enough, on a book or the experience of someone else. This line of codependency stretches back to the source of the tradition, the owner of the original transcendent experience. Fundamentalists study books rather than using books to study themselves. They mistake myth as fact and read it like it's history. This inoculates religion. It says that the transcendent realm is off limits to everyone except the historical embodiment of transcendence that sits on the altar of their tradition. Fundamentalists have this kind of unwavering attachment to a set of ideas that don't actually belong to them. And these ideas, because they don't belong to them, lack the potency to affect any meaningful change in their lives. But they're kind of held captive by those ideas because in these fundamentalist circles, you see a strong in-group dynamic that utilizes the mechanism of fear and the threat of ostracization to perpetuate this psychological identification with those unsubstantiated ideas. But it's important to note that however gripping those ideas might be in terms of keeping you subscribed to them in theory and keeping you dependent upon the group, those ideas are still not beliefs because they're not affecting your actions. They're not affecting the way that you live your daily life. They lack the experiential component that's needed to affect action. The experiential component that's missing here comes from spiritual practice, which is why a practice-based spirituality is so important. Practice can be seen as a process of experimentation, and experimentation leads to experience. And it's through experience that we come to own these ideas or they become beliefs. Once they get to that point where they're beliefs and they're rooted in our own experience, well, then they possess the power to actually affect change in our lives. Ideas that are otherwise unsubstantiated can be tested using spiritual practice. Or in more religious language, you could say that spiritual practice makes us susceptible to the experience of revelation. The truth or validity of certain spiritual ideas can be tested using prayer, meditation, and self-examination. Once again, we have to pause here and clarify an important point. When I say that the truth of an idea can be verified using spiritual practice, I do not mean, for example, that the existence of a creator God or even a personal God can be proven by using prayer. I don't mean that because you pray and you experience an effect that that means there's something on the other side of that initiating that effect. What I mean is truth in the pragmatic sense of the word. William James wrote in The Meaning of Truth, 
The true, to put it very briefly, is only the expedient in our way of thinking, just as the right is only the expedient in our way of behaving. It's also worth noting that Bill Wilson, the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous and the author of The Twelve Steps, was deeply influenced by William James. In fact, he was reading William James's book, Varieties of Religious Experience, whenever he had his spiritual experience in a hospital where he was being treated for alcoholism. So, the idea of a personal God, if it's properly understood and skillfully employed, can be proven effective and therefore true in the pragmatic sense through spiritual practice, practices like prayer. And it might be fair to say that here the word truth may be more accurately rendered useful. So essentially what I'm saying is the idea of a personal God can be proven useful through practices like prayer. Prayer can be used to transcend our limited, self-centered point of view and arouse a sense of courage and compassion, a degree of sanity, even in the face of fear, anger, and confusion. This obviously does not demonstrate objectively or offer any sort of proof in the existence of a creator God, but it does demonstrate the truth or the usefulness or expediency of the belief in God. In order for the idea of God to be transformed into a belief in God, the idea must be practiced, though. In Luke chapter 6, verses 32 through 34, Jesus defines practice as the application of a spiritual idea outside the realm of our comfort zone. And that's such an important point. What he says is, if you love those who love you, what credit is that for you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that for you? For even sinners do the same. In other words, spiritual practice has to actually challenge you. It has to be demanding. There has to be sacrifice. And and more specifically, in, in, in the example I was using of prayer, prayer cannot be limited to periods of quiet reflection that take place only in our bedrooms. And it can't be just a series of petitions. We can't just be negotiating or asking for things that we want or think we need. Prayer has to enter our daily life, particularly when we're angry, stressed out, and afraid. The expedience of prayer is demonstrated when we pray beyond the false self system and reconnect with the life of the body. There we tap into the power needed to love our enemies, to do good even to those who do not do good in return to us, or and to do all of this without expecting anything in return. There we tap into the power needed to love our enemies and to do good while expecting nothing in return. This is where we discover the truth, the expediency of God. Or as Jesus said, this is where you'll find that your reward is great and that you are children of the Most High. But this is easier said than done. Bill Wilson wrote in the book Alcoholics Anonymous, Almost none of us like the self-searching, the leveling of our pride, the confession of shortcomings which the process requires for its successful consummation. Yeah, at the end of the day, it's easy to think. But the work and the sacrifice that belief requires is difficult and demanding. It's challenging. So what most people do is rather than consenting to the path of practice, they look for a detour. They look to go around it. They look for the easier, softer way. You know, as Jesus put it, the gate is wide and the road is easy that leads to destruction, and there are many who take it. But the gate is narrow and the road is hard that leads to life, and there are few who find it. For most people, the concept of God never matures into a proper belief. And by proper belief, I mean an idea that orients our entire being toward the world in which we live. Instead, it remains an impotent piece of intellectual property with which we psychologically identify. 
This identification is a form of spiritual bypassing. It circumvents or detours the painstaking work of transformation by plastering over our fear and our anger and self-centeredness with delusion and spiritual rhetoric. But that rhetoric is empty. And it's this empty rhetoric that Jesus was referring to when he said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only the one who does. I'll repeat that. But only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Only those who are practicing spiritual principles. Only those who embody those spiritual principles. Only those who express those spiritual principles in their daily life are abiding in heaven. At the end of the day, what we think and say does not matter much. It's our actions that matter. When we think and talk of spiritual principles but fail to express those principles in our daily life, we betray our true self. This is the betrayal of Christ. This is the kiss of Judas. Spirituality is nothing if it is not the act by which we transcend the claustrophobic world between our ears and reconnect with the vastness and the richness of our true life. Any ideas about spirituality we possess or identify with must be measured against their capacity to realize this goal. If those ideas fail to inspire action and bring about meaningful change, then they must be discarded. If these ideas inspire us to give freely of our time and energy, to love our enemies, and to shed the skin of our false self, then these ideas must be practiced until they become a working part of our mind. That is the path of transformation.